Uh, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for your very warm welcome. I recognise lots of faces, or maybe I don't, because I'm hopeless at faces. And we might have been in house group together, I said to someone just before the service, and I wouldn't remember. So, if we're best friends, tell me after. <laughs> uh, I am here with my beautiful, creative, courageous warrior wife, Emma, and we've got some ankle biters upstairs, and uh, I've brought the, the, the cream of the crop such as they are from Thornhill with us. I <laughs> um, feel like God stitched me up a little bit in that I was, I've been excited about this and praying and preparing for quite a long time. And last week, while I was doing some preparation for this, he spoke to me very clearly, I thought, and gave me a specific word, which has absolutely nothing to do, as far as I'm aware, of what I'm talking about today, but I felt was a word for your church. And I was excited to do that first, before anything else, and I felt he gave me the image of um, a teapot and putting some leaves or bags in the teapot and letting them brew. So I should give you this word at the beginning of the uh, talk, and then it can brew in you in the Holy Spirit through and some ministry at the end. And so I thought, oh, that's, that's different, that's weird, I'll do that, I don't mind. And then I just walk in this morning, and then I saw the verse that he's given me on a poster on your wall, and might well be something important already to you, and so I think he stitched me up. So, that's fine. The, um, uh, yeah, why don't you stand up, if he's got something for us. Let's respond in a respectful way. So... The verse I felt like he had given me for you was, God places the lonely in families, which I see on your wall. It's from Psalm 68, and it says, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. And what I felt was, I could just see a whole load of older middle class, older middle aged and elderly people in Winchester, well off, comfortable, got their, with the elderly, got their money sorted out, ready for funerals and things, but just desperately lonely. So completely comfortable as far as the world would be concerned but desperately lonely. And I wondered if that was something that God was giving you as a mission field. I also thought about fostering and adoption, but I think you're already, you're already milling that one around. So, so Holy Spirit, just as we start, if any of this is from you, will you speak to spirits now? You speak to our spirits now, and where this is a word from you and something to dwell on, that God places the lonely in families, would you brew that in us as we wait and give these good people something to think about while I talk on? Amen. Great. Nigel, let's give him a clap. You know, once when I was doing a, a pastor's conference in India, I had a guy fall asleep. 
in the front row and I actually got so offended in my pride that I stopped and woke him up in front of everybody. You have full permission to fall asleep, my friend. Lay out and snore. We, we, we respect what you've done. Right. I'm gonna, being as we're going backwards through the service, I'm just going to give you my conclusion and punchline, all right? So, this is where I'm going. Next slide, thank you very much. Intuitive, prophetic slide man. <laughs> Do not assume that our safe, Western, capitalist, individualist, privileged consumer lifestyles are normal, are standard, or are acceptable. Do not assume that our safe Western capitalist individualist privileged consumer lifestyles are normal, standard, or acceptable. We'll get there, but that's where we're going. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to 2 Samuel 24? And that's about a fifth of the people with a Bible, Joe, in case you're taking notes. I told all mine to bring one so we'd look good. So in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, I want to share with you, it's, a, it's kind of a, a verse that God's written deep inside me, like scoured into me in, in a bone level when I was a teenager. And... <laughs> Well, I was preparing a talk on justice. I've still got that talk. It's not bad. It's not this one, though. Um, but while I was preparing it, God kept pushing me sideways and pushing me sideways. And I asked Jo if it was all right. And she said, do whatever you like. And so this is almost like a preliminary talk before we get to the justice issues. This is like a heart-level talk before we start ad- ad- addressing some of the specific issues of, of lifestyle and um, being global citizens. So here we go. So... To Samuel, it's a fairly peaceful time. King David's on his throne and the enemy, Satan, asks God permission to tempt David and God gives it. So the enemy tempts David into taking a census of all the fighting forces across Israel. And so David goes to his commanders of his army and says, this is what I want to do. I want you to go out and count all the fighting forces across the whole of Israel. And they look at him and they go, why would my Lord want to do such a thing? Straight off the bat, they know that that would be sinful. It's sinful on two counts, really. One is, it's David taking pride in what has been accomplished and attributing it to, him, to himself. It's like, look how, what a mighty warrior I am. What a mighty king I am. What a mighty kingdom I lead. Look at all these countless, not countless, because he's counting them. Look at all these 700,000 people who can wield a sword. Look how mighty we are. The second thing is, it's causing them as a nation and him as the ruler of the nation to take their security from their army, from their fighting force, rather than their security from God. And you'll know, having read the Bible, a fifth of you, that in the Old Testament, again and again and again, God shows Israel that whether they win battles or not is not down to how good their soldiers are or how many soldiers they got, right? Again and again, it's to whether or not someone can hold their arms up for a couple of days. Or, or it's like, you've got too many people, send them all away until you've got about the size of a platoon, and then 
crash some jars together and, oh, oh no, for this one, I want you to walk around the whole city blowing trumpets and singing and then go back to bed and then do it again the next day and go back to bed and go, and then at the end, the city will fall down. It's just, or we go out to fight and the, the number of their, their armies, the enemy's armies is just, you can't see the end of them and then God strikes them blind and you can lead them into your capital city. Just again and again and again, God proves that it's not about how big your army is or the fact that you don't have the latest military technology like chariots and stuff or camels or whatever was the cutting edge. It's actually about him being in charge of you. You laugh. Camels, long, long range vehicles. Chariots, tanks and armour personnel carry of their day I tell you I like a bit of military history me did you know the invention of a stirrups lance completely changed medieval warfare Nigel mm, did some of you will uh, be working and you'll have people who work for you God's put them there Sometimes when we have a great idea, they'll tell you it's not a great idea. Just like these guys told David. So what do you want to do that for? That's sinful. I feel like my head's going to fall off of this thing. Just tell me if I start looking weird. If you can hear me, and then that's fine. David says, I'm the king, we're doing it. And he sends out his people to have this census. And after nine months and 20 days, Joab comes back and reports the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken. You know when you've sinned, and then you realise it at the point where it's too late? I mean, he had nine months, but at the point where he comes back with the report, instantly David, who's a very sensitive man of God, we're talking about this in our house this week, it's incredible that David... I'm just going to go on so many tangents. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. David is... You know, he's a murderer and he's an adulterer and he's an adulterous murderer and yet he's a man after God's own heart. And you see how he reacts to the prompting of God and it's wonderful. And straight away he's conscience-stricken and he says, I've sinned greatly against you, Lord. And Lord sends Gad, a prophet, to say, yeah, I know. You've got three punishments. You can choose them, which is a bit weird. You can have... Uh, three years of famine you can have three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you which is a long time to run away three months or you can have three days of plague it's like it's like the worst game ever of deal or no deal isn't it it's which box you're going to open and david says let's fall into the hands of the lord because he is merciful and so plague comes and it rips through the land until uh 70,000 people from Dan to Bathsheba died. But when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved and said, Enough, withdraw your hand. He had mercy. And David saw the angel. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. David saw the angel. He saw where he was standing. He said to the Lord, Lord, stop. I'm the one who sinned, not all these people. Take it out on me and my family, not on these people. You want to follow a leader like that, don't you? On that day, Gad, the prophet, went up to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, which is where the angel had stopped. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. 
And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. The Jebusites were the ones who had Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. They're the ones who had the original city. It didn't go out at that point as far as this uh, threshing floor. You know threshing floor? Threshing floor is like a high up place with a big flat level uh, plain where you could, th- you could bash the wheat about, throw it up into the air and, and the wind would blow all the chaff off and then the good seed would fall down and you could gather it up again. That's, that's what a fl- thresh- threshing, floor, threshing floor is. Why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord so that the plague against the people can be stopped. Aruna said to David, Yet let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna also gives all this to the king. And Aruna said to him, May the lord your God accept you. Which is great. He's, a, he's, he's just basically said, take my business, my way of life, my way of earning income for my family, smash it all up, put it into a big bonfire. These oxen, which are part of my business and part of my livelihood, kill them, use them for the offering so that God will save your people. He's not even an Israelite. He's a nice man. You don't hear much about him after this. And this is the, this is the key. This is the take-home verse for the whole day. The king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. That threshing floor was on Mount Moriah. You might remember Mount Moriah. It's where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. And you might remember it because not that long after David bought it, his son Solomon built the temple on it. That guy's threshing floor became the foundation for Solomon's temple. I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. I understand you've been looking at um, Micah 6, to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. I looked at that, see if it tied in. It seemed to. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, Micah here sing exactly what David saw, which was it's not the animals in the sacrifice which actually God is after. It's not, it's our hearts. And it's going to cost. That's absolutely clear, isn't it? If we're really going to do it, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be disciples, radical disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be scattered servants, it's going to cost us. It can't not cost us. 
He says explicitly it's going to cost us. Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You're familiar with that verse, most of you. Loses its impact. It's a crazy thing to say, though. If anyone wants to follow me, they must roll up their sleeves, put the ligature on, put the needle with the lethal injection into their vein, strap it on and follow me. That's what he's saying. There's, there's not much wiggle room for it not costing us. For it being comfortable and always a happy pleasure. But contrary to this, it's my contention that for most of the church in the West, we look and live no different than the culture around us. We might believe differently, but we live the same. We look the same. People drive down your street, I doubt they're going to be able to pick out which house a Christian lives in. Not that they should. I don't want you to stick a massive great cross on the lawn or something. That would be really weird. If they meet you in the pub, the stuff that you talk about, they might not be able to discern any difference. The way you dress, the car you drive, the type of work you do, what you do with your family, where you go on holiday, where your kids go to school, how you relate to your neighbours around you, how you relate to your community, how you relate to community projects. How much do we look any different than normal, decent people in the UK? And should we? Because I think that in the same way that we can be blind to the culture of church sometimes and just think this is the way it is, this is the way it's always been, this is the way it ought to be, we can also be blind to our culture. It's really helpful when you have international friends come over and uh, have a look at your culture. And if you're friends enough for them to talk to you about it and say, that's just weird, why are you doing that? I mean, sometimes it's just a cultural thing. Uh, our friend Pastor Sam from India, he's very, he's very kind, he's very tactful, he's very nice. We came into our house and he's like, ah, animals, why have you got animals in your house? You have, you have cats in your house, you let them on your furniture, in your beds, it's disgusting. <laughs> That's all right. That's fine. That's just a cultural difference. And, and because we're really, really good friends, I said to Sam once, you know, you, all of you, your skin, it smells beautiful, it smells spicy, you've got this kind of you know, chilly curry smell coming off you the whole time just because of your diet. I said, what do, what do British people smell of? And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 Pastor Duncan, no, 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 no. And I said, come on, Sam, you can tell me. No, 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 no. What do we smell of then? Sour milk. <laughs> He's wondered what British people smell to people in the subcontinent. We smell of sour milk because of all the dairy in our diet. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Gets you there. See, our culture, this culture we live in, you're very aware, is all about me. It's all L'Oreal. It's all because I'm worth it. It's about me. It's about my safety. It's about my security. It's about my comfort. It's about my direction of my life. It's about providing for me and mine, for my children. It's about my holidays. It's about my safe castle. And after that, anything after that, we can give away to children in need or Red Nose Day or anything that we've got spare, we'll feel good about sharing. And so much of the time, we're, we're exactly the same. 
without thinking about it. I'm not trying to kick anyone in the head and beat you up. I know Joe said I could challenge you, but I'm not trying to condemn anybody because we're just the same. We, we've got none of this right. I'm just looking at the Bible. It's not supposed to be about us. It's supposed to be about him. It's supposed to be about his kingdom, his mission, his will be done on earth as it is in the heavens all around us. And that can't just be reflected in what we say and do in church buildings or in our house groups or in our little outreach groups. It should be the whole core of our life, the whole place where we live, our, our workspace, our family, how we relate to others. Time, energy and money. It's all we've got. Time, energy and money. We did something, when we were part of Southampton Vineyard years ago, we did something, didn't we, as house group leaders, where we, I can't quite remember, but we wrote down how many, how many hours, for quite a long time, how many hours in a week we like, watched television, how many hours in a week we were on other screens, actually, but it was before other screens, I think. How many, how many hours a week we spent with Christian friends, how many hours a week we spent with non-Christian friends, how, how much money we were spending on entertaining ourselves, how much money we were giving away. It was a whole comprehensive thing, wasn't it? I don't know what we did with it other than go <laughs> let's, let's not look at that that's far too scary when Emma and I were very young we were childhood sweethearts in youth group back in Kent and uh, I campaigned for a long time to win her heart and finally was victorious she's regretted it ever since and we didn't have children and we were looking at our lives and we were saying, what, what, what's ahead? And we were quite, uh, because of the weird kind of way that um, Southampton Vineyard started as a group of students, we didn't have kind of layers of generations above and below and people to look at and compare ourselves to. And so we were just this group of students really and we just looked at our lives and we said, well, what's going to happen? What's going to be the path and the direction and the, the outcome of our lives? And we saw... For the majority of the church, not our church, the church, the big church, that it was just the same as the world. That for me and Emma, what we might do is uh, get some jobs and then get a flat and then get a tiny little car which would break down a lot and then maybe one of us would get a promotion and with that extra money we might start saving up for a, a small house instead of a flat and then we could maybe afford to go on our first holiday uh, and then the other one might get a promotion and we could afford a second car. And then we might start trying for some children. And obviously when you get some children, you need an even bigger house, don't you? Because you need more bedrooms. And then we would need two better reliable cars because, come on, we're looking after our children here. This is our children's future. They need to be safe. And we need to have a massive boot so we can go on holiday. Uh, and it's, over the long term, it's much more economical to buy a brilliant car. So actually, you're stewarding your resources fantastically. We go on better holidays, start increasing our pension contributions, get another promotion. Maybe we get our big forever family house. Aim for early retirement, job done. And we just thought, it can't be like that for every Christian. It can't be that we automatically slot into the tram lines of the world, because that's the tram lines of the world. That's nothing to do with the gospel. It's nothing to do with what Jesus called us to. That's just how you live in the UK if you're vaguely middle class, isn't it? There's, no, there's nothing to say that that is the right way to do it. Do not assume that our safe, Western, capitalist, individualist, privileged consumer lifestyles are normal. They're just normal here. You surround yourselves with people who look like you, it's going to be normal. It's not normal out there. It's not normal in the world. It's not normal for my friend, Pastor Sam in India, and you've 
probably been on mission trips, you've got international friends, you've seen the brokenness and the poverty, you've seen how if you have one book, if you own one book, you're in the top 3% people in the world. I've got a lot more than one book. I've got a magic Kindle with a million billion books on it. We came home from India on our first ministry trip in the year 2000 and I went into our lounge and I knelt down and I cried. And I cried for all the stuff I had that I didn't need. And for the blindness of how it was normal. You know when people have been ministering overseas and they come back and they stand in Sainsbury's or Waitrose or whatever and they, I'm saying Waitrose because we're in Winchester. <laughs> they, they stand in Waitrose and they cry at the, at the variety of breakfast cereal on offer because of people dying because they can't just get maize back where they're working. But you live here and surround yourself with people who are just like you and it's normal, it's normal, it's okay, it's fine. It's fine for me to have this car, it's fine for me to go on holiday three times a year, it's fine for me to have this big house. We're just about to build an extension. I'm not telling you that we live in a mud hut. (coughs) What if that's not what he wants for us? That's all I'm saying. The trouble with being growing up in Southampton Vineyard is that our, our pastor Matt is a... Uh, <laughs> help me out here. He's a radical, he's a free thinker, and he's belligerent, and when he gets an idea he just goes and does it regardless of what anyone else thinks. And so he's not afraid to, to, to think outside the box and everything and he did, that with, he did that with lots of things to do with church and he's trained us to think the same way but what if what if instead of most Christians just looking exactly the same as the rest of the world and as they get older accumulating wealth and choices which is power wealth and power until they then can pass some down to their children and then they die what if that wasn't the majority and you've got to be honest that is the majority of us isn't it what if the majority of Christians were deliberately downwardly mobile. Both in order to reflect God's preferential heart for the poor, that incarnational drive from the Holy Spirit of go and be with, of go and be with, of go and be with. But also just to steward the resources that God gives us better. What if the church in the UK was in the majority downwardly mobile and deliberately went and chose to live in areas that they could easily afford and have excess money to do other stuff with for the kingdom. Emma and I were just talking this week about how we really wish a few years ago we had got out a second buy-to-let mortgage, not a second buy-to-let mortgage, a second mortgage that would be buy-to-let, and got a little flat because we've got a friend who's moving away now, but we could have quite easily got that flat under our credit she could have lived there and reduced rent but still be paying way more, way less than commercial rent and at the same time we would have been building up provision that we could use for someone else. And never even entered my mind because this person isn't in my nuclear family and it would be a risk. And one of the talks I was going to do today was tell you all about some of the crazy risks we've had in our journey to accidentally plant a church in Thornhill in this, in this housing estate. Um, but I haven't got time. What if we as a group of people, or you as a house group, or you as a church decided that (coughs) for Winchester, a good enough wage to live on and survive and thrive was this. This. And anyone who earned above that gave it away. That is starting to question whether our consumer, materialistic, individualistic lifestyle is normal and acceptable or not.
schools and children. So we moved. <coughs> God told us to go and live in this housing state. We went to live there. It's accidentally, over the years, deteriorated into a church. It really wasn't our intention. God totally stitched us up. We'd never have gone and planted a church. It's a stupid, rubbish thing to do. Don't do it. <laughs> Unless God's called you to. And people said to us, what about your children? What about your children? You're going to be putting your children in these rubbish schools with naughty children who swear and don't have dads and hide under the desk and throw, throw chairs. This lady here, Hattie, works as a TA in, in the, what was a failing school in our estate. And every day she's abused, she's bitten, she's spat at, she's reaching out to some of the most broken and vulnerable children in our country. And we said, do you know what? What if this tramline of middle-class, Western, capitalist, individualist thing, what if that isn't the normal? What if, if, if God's calling me and Emma to go and live in this place, then he's calling our children as well? What if he's calling us to be salt and light, then he's calling our children to be salt and light as well? And so that's what we've gone with. And all of our kids are in the local schools. Some of them are great, some of them aren't so great. But everywhere, our children are making a difference. And I tell you what, they're making a lot more difference than we are. Most of us go off the estate and go to work somewhere and come back in the evening. We might, you know, we're doing a food rotor for a neighbour who's having a baby at the moment. We might do some litter picking. We might do a little outreach here. We might do a community project there. But most of the time, we live our lives off the estate. Our children are there the whole time, mixing with all the people who are going to grow up and be the next people who live in the estate. Let me, let me boast on our kids just for a sec. We, um, a lady has joined our church with her family. She's not a believer. And she has come along because of the witness of our children. Because she, over the years, has worked as a teacher in all three primary schools in our estate. And she has got married, has got a little, little, little child. And she said, I see something in your children that I've never seen anywhere else. And I want for my child and in our family. Can I come to your church? You know, it wasn't us. It was never us. It was them. If you move into a better catchment area so your children can go to a better school, you're knocking somebody else who can't afford to off the bottom and their child has to go to a worse school. Hello! Does that sound like the gospel? The tram lines of our culture, that's just what you do. That's just what you do. You want the best for your kids. Because if your kids don't go to a really good school, they won't get really good results. And if they don't get really good results, they won't get really good qualifications. They won't get a really good job. If they don't get a really good job, they won't get a really good wage. And if they don't get a really good wage, how are they going to afford a BMW and a massive four-bedroom house and go on a holiday? Hello? The tram lines of our culture, why do you want your kids to get an amazing education? Is that going to save them? Is that going to stop them from turning into us? No, it's more likely to turn them into us, obsessed with this money-driven culture. It's a bit of a rant by me. He doesn't want 10% of your money, church. He doesn't. He doesn't want 10% of your money and then 90% you get to allocate on whatever you want. He wants 100% of your money. He wants 100% of your money. It's not yours. You gave yourself up to him. You signed your life away. You said, Lord Jesus, I'll follow you. You took up your cross. I got a book. I got three books. I'm doing the books now, dude. Let's start with this one. Let's talk about money. This is a book by a guy called Stuart Murray. 
Stuart Murray Williams now, he's got married, in his book called Beyond Tithing. And in it, he suggests that a 10% tithe is not biblical for New Testament Christians. He suggests that actually, for a lot of the medieval times and on into today, a 10% tithe is a tax on the poor and lets the rest of us off, hideously. And he backs it up, biblically. He says, if you want to do the, ta- if you want to do the tithe that the Old Testament did, if you want to do it under the theocracy of the Old Testament rules, there were three tithes a year, that's 30%, and then there's the year of Jubilee as well. Don't read this. It will make you think that giving 10% isn't enough. Uh, Shane Claiborne, Irresistible Revolution. Don't read this. He makes his own clothes. He's got dreadlocks. He lives like in a commune. (laughs) It's brilliant. Really, really provoking about what it means to take Jesus seriously and question this culture we live in. I don't really think most of you lovely Winchester Waitrose people are going to get dreadlocks. I really don't. I don't expect you to start making your own clothes. But you might start taking Jesus more seriously after reading it. This one, Radical by David Platt. He's this American guy who had one of these super churches, thousands and thousands of people. And then he's he's decided that actually what they were producing out of their super church was materialist, western, individualist, consumer lifestyle Christians and not disciples of Jesus. And he started making changes and it's very challenging. And read this one because you can step aside from all the critique and go, (laughs) stupid Americans. (laughs) So read that one. Joe, I don't have time to do any of the justice stuff, I'm sorry. I was going to talk now about how taking this seriously, assuming that I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing, means it's going to cost me something. And I was going to give you some concrete examples in terms of how, where you bank, what you do with your investments, how you're consuming of um, food and where you purchase that kind of thing, where you shop, where, who makes your clothes, all kinds of stuff. But that's for another day. Just to say, all of those things have a massive impact on the rest of the planet. Whether we do our... No, I don't have time. Get Matt in to do that. He's brilliant at that. No, I've got to. If, <laughs> if you had a choice between investing your money with somebody who, ha- who is going to give you the maximum return, but is going to invest your money in the oil industry, in the armament industry, is building fighter planes and selling them to other regimes, in pornography, in illegal drugs, in stuff which is going to damage the environment, or you could invest your money over here in things which are going to do good kingdom-wise, but also are going to do good for the planet, are going to do good for the poor, it's going to be about justice, but your returns will be much less. If I sat you down with two people with two pieces of paper to sign, all of you would choose here. You would all choose there. But I'm willing to bet that probably 95% of you have investments that you haven't thought about where that money is that you bank with banks that don't have an ethical policy because the whole thing is sold on how much return they give you not on what they're doing with your money and you have a massive impact with where you put your money 
don't assume that the Western capitalist, individualist, tramlines lifestyle is normal or acceptable. I'm sure there must be an IFA in the room. So question, subvert, resist, oppose, rebel, think, wake up. The countercultural values of Jesus Christ, the values of the kingdom of God, where the last shall be first, where the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Instead of getting and building the richest, the safest, the most secure and comfortable life that we can and sometimes justifying it by saying we're looking after our children, we're to be following the one who had nowhere to lay his head, who had no pension plan and gave his life that we might live. It can't just affect our minds. It has to affect our bank balance, our houses, our cars. It has to, or we're just making it up, aren't we? I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will not live my life like everybody else in my culture, assuming that it's my right to have as much as I can for me and to be as comfortable and as safe as I possibly can. I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. He's speaking to some of you now. I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. Ask him, what does it look like for me, for my family? Ask him, show me where I'm blind to the values of my culture. Let the scales fall from my eyes. Ask him, where have I taken on the values of this world, of this culture, of this kingdom, instead of actually taking the values of your kingdom, which I know about, but I'm living completely differently to? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Lord Jesus, is it all right that I have this car? Lord Jesus, is it all right that we go on holiday here? Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do with this retirement plan? Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do with my ISA? Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do? Where shall I go shopping? What shall I eat? Lord Jesus, how shall I behave towards my neighbour? Lord Jesus, how should I live in this money and safety and individual obsessed culture how shall I live Jesus do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will do you want to stand up have you got any words guys do you want to bring them up You know, we don't have to say, come Holy Spirit, because he's always with us. He dwells inside of us. He's, I love the way that we went from worship with a bit of ministry into a bit of notices, into a bit of ministry, into a talk, into a bit of ministry. And he's already working in you and me. Do you want to read it? Yeah. Say. <laughs> I, this I had before Duncan spoke and I suspect probably like me there's a lot of people feeling um, quite challenged uh, and I you know I'm probably the worst example in our little church of how to live like this um, but I really feel God has been saying um, 
that that guilt can only be released by him and uh, and that's what before I had no idea what Duncan was going to talk about and this morning that was in my head was just that for some people they are going to be racked with guilt and it's only God it's only Jesus that can release that um, so uh, you're doing ministry time so if that's for you during ministry time please make sure you get prayed for absolutely yeah got a word here um, from one of the team you need to remember that Jesus came as a baby a vulnerable social outcast baby and he's calling you to be as vulnerable as a baby resting in his arms letting go of everything come to him like this he loves you that's a really good response after challenging word isn't it somebody else as they came in um, just said they didn't know what Duncan was talking about today but they said they felt like somebody is completely crushed under financial burdens and God just wants to release them for that so we have heard a challenging word and God doesn't come to make us feel guilty as Josh has said he comes to highlight things that he wants to fix with us and so if like me you're feeling challenged then what Duncan just said at the end Jesus what do I do about this how do I do this how do I shop he'll show us the answers so although on some levels this is a really heavy thing to hear actually the freeing thing is that he can show us how to respond and how to live better Um, I had a word about forgiveness Um, forgiveness can be something hard and it can be painful and it it's not an easy choice, especially when you feel that you've been hurt really badly. But how we treat people, not just that are our friends and our neighbours and that we want to help and be with, but how we treat those who have wronged us, hurt us, caused us pain and sadness, um, can be a, a huge uh, testament to the gospel and to how Jesus was to those that hurt him and turned on him. So if anyone feels they would prefer for that. Thanks, Jane. Yeah, just remember the the words we had at the beginning. God places the lonely in families. If you've been brewing with that, if that's something that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, why don't you?